Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. I was talking about uh, how the food storing uh, bird cognition thing kind of evolved. Uh, So after Sherry, Avery, and Stevens found that they were almost certainly finding their own caches, the question then is, how are they doing it? And are they using memory? It seems like they would have to be because birds aren't very good at smelling things or things like that. But the best way to do it, of course, would be take it into the lab. So what Sarah Shuttleworth and John Krebs did in uh, 82 when Sarah was on sabbatical at Oxford uh, is sh- they brought birds into, uh, these were marsh tits, they stored seeds in the lab, and it's in an aviary, a very small room, maybe a quarter the size of this, with a little um, a window where you sit that's kind of uh, like frosted glass, so the birds, uh, or smoked glass, so the birds can't see you. And you sit there and watch them store food uh, in, in, in trees. And by trees, I mean four-by-fours with holes built in them. They, they weren't actual trees. Uh, so there were four of these in the room. And the, there were holes drilled in them. Uh, so I think uh, 16 in each post. So a total of 64 of these holes. The birds are allowed to store these pine, uh, pine seeds, like pine nuts. Um, and then they're taken out of the... Uh, room out of the aviary, back into their home cage, okay? and they sit in the home cage for, I think it was an hour, and then they're allowed back in. Um, now, what, now Sarah, Sarah actually ran this, so I'll just say Sarah, though Sarah and John did it. What Sarah then did is she took, I think they were like sort of four or six seeds, and you're thinking, how do you stop birds from storing food? Well, you turn the lights off in the aviary, and they stop. You turn a light on in their home cage, and there's a the cage uh, there's like a trap door between the home cage and the aviary. You turn the light on in the home cage, and the lights off in the aviary. They fly in, so you can stop them. They do. They fly in if if, if they're cooperating. <laughs> if they don't, you have to go into the aviary, sneak in very carefully, and make noise, and then take a flashlight, and they'll follow the flashlight down to their cage. And you walk like this. Because if they're on the floor, you kill them if you step on them. Right? <laughs> these, these birds weigh 11 grams. Uh, so they're very small animals. So you get them back in there, and then, like I said, it was six or eight, something like that, seeds. And then she would take six or eight other seeds and place them in random holes in, 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 in the, uh, uh, these, these, quote, trees. The birds found some of those just by flying around, but they were way better... And more, they spend a lot more time recovering their own seeds than the randomly placed seeds. So that's kind of like looking at the Sherry Avery and Stevens thing, but it's also showing that they're remembering where they put them. They, she also removed, so she took half the seeds, basically, and moved them. So it's basically the same thing. They would go back to where to the locations where they'd put seeds, even if there was no, no seeds. So they weren't just using, flying around looking, going, oh, where is one? No, they actually were looking, they were, they were flying to where they had put one. So it's pretty clear they were using memory. Okay. So this was the paper that showed that these food stores were doing this. This is the only Sarah told me it's the only paper she's ever submitted to a journal that came back and said accepted 
Papers almost always come back with accepted with these revisions. And it can be anything from you're missing, you should have a sentence about this, you should change this graph, uh, to uh, reanalyze your data. Those are revisions. Then sometimes you get revise and resubmit. So that's revise it and then send it back again to be reviewed again. And then it's very, sometimes, I don't think either of them ever got this, but sometimes you get, what, no. What are you thinking? You get no, just a rejection. But she, this, she said it's the only time she ever got one, and they just said, yeah, it's fine. Which really is pretty special because it doesn't happen. It literally doesn't happen. Like there was not a comma out of place. So a whole bunch of people started doing sort of general memory tests looking at storing versus non-storing birds. Because storing birds should be very good at memory. Because if they don't recover their seeds, they die. Right? Literally the case, if they don't recover their seeds, a, a marsh tit or a chickadee weighs 12 grams. If it doesn't recover a seed when it wakes up in the morning, it'll starve to death in half an hour, 45 minutes. They just die. So they better be really good at it. Right? Or they die. So, and again, evolutionarily, they wouldn't pass, the ones that don't have the good memory wouldn't pass their genes on. Very good. Okay. Now there would be non-storing birds... Ideally, you would want to have non-storing birds in the same family, right? So they're related, pretty closely related, but they're not storers. And looking at corvids, that's crows and nutcrackers. Uh, so that's like Clark's nutcracker, blue jay, pinion jay, those kind of things, scrub jays. The storing uh, corvids certainly do, do better on memory tests than the non-storing corvids. Um, a classic, I wonder if I have this coming up. Well, it doesn't matter if I have it, I'll talk about it now anyway. Uh, one of the neat things that Deb Olson did in Al Camel's lab is she did what's called spatial delayed matching the sample, where she just had a Skinner box, and here's the panel. Okay. And it just had two lights, two, uh, two key lights. Okay. Bird's task was very simple. It was One of the key lights would light up. So it's actually, so it looks like this, and then there's a feeder, okay? So it's... So you have two, one of these light lights up, then there's a retention interval, then the bird gets a choice between the two lights, and if they peck the right one, they get food. If they peck the wrong one, they get no food. Same color, always white lights. Pretty straightforward. Deb tested Clark's Nutcrackers on this, scrub jays, and pigeons. Scrub jays don't rely very much at all on food, stored food. I've told you about Clark's Nutcrackers, how much they store, and pigeons are sort of the outgroup. Pigeons can do this on a level of about five seconds. Beyond that, they can start to scrub. Scrub jays, 15 seconds. Clark's Nutcrackers, a minute and a half. <laughs> like they, they're really good at this. So that's Deb Olson's work. So that's one example in the corvids. That's a general memory test. That's a kind of memory test that's used a lot in all kinds of animal species. So it's showing up in the corvids, but, and there are hippocampal differences, I think I've told you about, and I've not told you about them here, I've told you about them in other classes, where there are differences between size of hippocampus in food storing and non-storing birds. Okay? Food stores have bigger hippocampus than non-storing birds. 
shouldn't surprise you, the hippocampus is important for remembering spatial locations. And this is also true in parrots, the, the chickadees and titmice. And it's certainly true in the corvids. And it's also true in the cytids, that's the nuthatches. Those are the three storing families, okay? Now, the thing is, what about the parrots, the, the, the chickadees and titmites? titmites. Um, looking at memory tests like this, the data were at best equivocal. Sometimes people would find differences, and sometimes people wouldn't. So sometimes people would find these differences that, not unlike what Deb Olson found with the, with the Clark's Nutcrackers, and other times people wouldn't. They'd find no difference. They'd find the difference go the other way. That the, the, food, the non-store is better than the stores. And this is, we're getting into the, sort of the late 80s here. So it might have been the case, though, that instead of looking at how much or how long they could remember something, which is what these guys were doing, people like Deb Olson and Al Campbell and Russ Baldwin, what they were doing. Maybe it wasn't how much or how long, but it was how they remembered stuff. So a qualitative ver difference versus a quantitative difference. I've talked about this before, this notion that, remember I talked about, you could talk about a qualitative difference between two species and a quantitative difference. A quantitative difference is that snakes have no legs and humans have two. We have two more than they do. Right. But you could also almost call that qualitative, really, because at, that, at some point snakes have, do have little tiny, so it's qualitative. It's also quantitative in that case. Let's look at how, another example, you can do analysis of variance by using those formulas with the sum of the squares, or you can actually do it with matrix algebra. At the end, you can say answer. It's how you did it that's a little bit different. You do it with matrix algebra, you're actually doing it with regression. It's crazy. In the end, it comes out the same. In the end, I get to the end of the hall and so does a snake. But the way we've done it's different. So the idea then is not looking at how much they can remember, but it's how they remember. So this was something that um, a bright young graduate student thought of in the late, I guess early 1990s. In fact, when I got to graduate school, Sarah Shuttleworth said to me, this was, would be 1988, and she said, what do you want to do for your master's thesis? I said, I want to know what they remember. And she said, let's save that for your PhD. That's a big question. That's a really big question. I said, okay. So this was my idea. Uh, there's me there. Uh, there's Sarah. I would be 26 there, just finished my PhD. And I'm sitting there, we're about to have a party. 26, no, I'd be 26. No, I'm sorry, I would have, I'm almost 28, 27 there. Montreal just won the Stanley Cup. Yay. Yep. <laughs> Montreal just won the Stanley Cup in 1993. That's why I'm wearing that T-shirt. Uh, and it was a party just before I guess it was for Isabel and I, because Isabel was moving away to London, and she was seven months pregnant with Maddie, and uh, I was staying to finish my writing. And we're sitting in her backyard. 
and uh, I weighed more than I do now. And I had hair halfway down my back. I can't notice that there, but it's all tied back in a ponytail. So, the idea I had was to compare storers and non-storers on what they remember on different tasks. I don't know what a task is. That's obviously a typo. So, this is something that I did. These are, these are my PhD experiments, um, most of them. That's experiments one to five. And that is experiment, experiment six and seven, and then one other one we did. Uh, one thing to note, if you're looking at graduate schools, things like that, take a look how many times, when you look at somebody's CV, how many times the student is the first author and how many times the professor is the first author. The student should be the first author, usually. Because it's the student's ideas. And note that I'm the first author. And note here, this is really neat. She actually said to me, when I did this stuff, when I gave her the original draft, I had it on, on you know, David R. Broadbeck, Sarah J. Shuttleworth. And she said, what's my name doing on there? I said, well, why wouldn't your name be on it? And she, she said, it's good for your career to have single author publications, which was a really cool thing for her to say. She didn't have to say that. So I just want like pointing that out. Uh, she was very good at promoting her graduate students. And uh, I thank her for that to this day. So here's how these experiments worked. This is taken from Sarah's book, Cognition, Evolution, and Behavior, um, where she did a much better figure than I did for my PhD thesis work. So this is what happens. In the, in the room, in the, in the in aviary, well, half the size of this room, um, I had little blocks of, uh, they're two by four, so about that size, okay, cut up, and I had 104 of them. And they're painted all different colors and different designs. Uh, Isabel and I spent a whole afternoon once painting designs on feeders. And she has thanked in the acknowledgments of most of my papers, uh, but in that one, for instance, for, for decorating the feeders. So it was everything from a Montreal Canadian's crest to an arrow pointing to where the bird should put, put, the, put a seed <laughs> to uh, uh, very sort of freeform things. There was a fleur de lis, because uh, of course, Isabel's from Quebec. Then I said, well, we have to have a Canadian flag, balance it out. So we had all kinds of stuff. I think it was a British flag. One said U2, because it's my favorite band. All kinds of stuff. Just, just making a mess with paint. It was a lot of fun. So there's a little hole about, oh, this size. Okay. Big enough to go to put a half a peanut in. And a dowel drilled into it so the bird could perch on it. And then there's a little circle around that, and it actually was covered around there with a piece of with Velcro. Okay, so what could happen was the birds would go in to the aviary and these would all be uncovered. Okay, they'd find one had a peanut in it and they would be allowed to eat for 30 seconds. Then I'd turn the lights off. Bird goes back to his home cage. I start a stopwatch. I read the Globe and Mail for five minutes. And then when the five minutes is up, I let the bird back in, lights go on. And normally it's the same setup except now there's a little piece of Velcro over each one of these. The bird's task is to fly in, remove the Velcro, and find the food. They get pretty good at this pretty quickly. Which shouldn't surprise you. I mean, they're, they're good at finding food they just saw. So this has all the parts of food storing in it, but it's not food storing. Right? Because I'm going to compare these to non-storing birds. I can't use food, because non-storing birds are really shitty at food storing experiments, because they don't store food. So typically then, 
So the chickadees find a seed in the feeder. I shouldn't say seed, really. I guess here it's a, it's a peanut, half a peanut. They return later and eat it. Now, after they get really good at this, and when I say really good, they're at 80% of the time they're right. So four of the last five days, you'll only run one of these trials a day. A chickadee eating half a peanut, it's like you eating a roast beef, like a whole freaking roast beef. That's like, you're done. They get really motivated for this. It's nice. They're hungry in the morning. I get there. I let them in. They're like, where's the peanut? They totally get this. But I can run one trial a day. Right? So uh, what I did is I moved these around. So I take these feeders. What have I done here? I've swapped uh, the one that's this color with this one. See? That's the right color. That's the right place in the array of feeders. And this is the right place in the spatial location. It's the closest actual place in absolute three-dimensional space where the, where the feeder was. And this is all done randomly. I had a computer program that just spat out where to put the feeders. So I didn't have anything to do with it. You can see here what the chickadees do. So then I, do, I let them back in, and I'm doing these tasks where I set an extinction, like, just like with the generalization or whatever. I've taken the peanut out. The bird flies in. He visits usually here first. Then he visits here. See that? Then he visits here, the color. And then finally, and this was so hard to get them to do. In fact, I would wait 10 minutes, and if they hadn't visited after 10 minutes, I'd just let them out back in their cage. They would usually just fly back and sit on, a, on the perch in the middle of the room sort of looking at me, looking at the door. Like, I know it's not that one. It's not the right spatial position. It's not in the right position in the array. It's not the right color, Dave. I'm done. I'm not even going to that one. I have some dignity left, you know, so the bird would be looking at me. Freaking dinosaurs. So, they remember the color. They remember the location, but the, the array position, but they, they, and they remember the location, but they respond to the location first. It's almost like overshadowing when you think back to Pavlovian condition. Now, I tried this also with other birds that lived in the area. I couldn't get non-storing parrots like chickadees or titmice in North America because there aren't any, unfortunately. So we had to find out where birds that were either really late migrators or birds that didn't migrate, weren't food stores, hard to find those. We did find birds that stayed a long time and that their home ranges in the fall overlapped with chickens. So we chose dark-eyed juncos. Um, at the time, there were a grand total of 13 papers ever written on dark-eyed juncos, which made finding anything about dark-eyed juncos very hard. Uh, it also means that everything I've ever written, when people cite things about dark-eyed juncos, they get cited for some oh, memory. You know. Catching them was hard. Because we knew how to catch chickadees. But they're migratory. They eventually leave. And it was funny. I went to the Royal Ontario Museum and to these old birder journals from like the 1830s, reading these things. And I said to Sarah, she said, when should, when should you go trapping? I said, October 10th. And she said, what? I said, apparently they come through October 10th. And she said, no, it can't be that accurate. I said, well, it looks like everything but like in 1950 is the only year they didn't come through October 10th. So on October 10th, I went out and I caught all kinds of juncos. October 11th, they were all gone. So there's something magical on October 10th in Toronto, right by the Mississauga, or, yeah, the Mississauga campus of U of T, which is where we would catch the birds, the Arendelle Woods. What they did, the juncos, is they would go to a third of the time to the location, a third of the time to the array, and a third of the time to the color 
first. They remember them all too. They just didn't weight them the same way the chickadees did. They just didn't weight them the same way. Okay? So they remembered the color. And in fact, when, you weren't, when I wasn't screwing with them, moving them around, they performed just like chickadees. They're fine. They're almost perfect very quickly. So it's not what they're remembering or how much they're remembering. It's, it's, it's how they're remembering that's different. Okay? It keeps happening. So I tried this now on a much smaller scale. I did this with a computer touchscreen, um, showing birds on a screen. Oh, I guess it was a 17-inch computer monitor. Ooh, <laughs> flat 17-inch flat screen computer monitor in 1991 cost about $1,800. They were expensive, and they were about this deep, and they put off so much heat that you could heat a home. Like they were really warm. But all I did, so on, on this computer monitor, this is why I was making sure I had different colors today. Good, I did. They would get, let's say, a green one here. Okay? And it had a black dot on it. So that's what happens on the, on the, on the first trial. On the, they, they peck on that, they get food in this feeder. Okay? Now, then, on the test, well, normally in training, what happens is this comes back up without the black dot, and then there's a, that one and a blue one. If they peck that one, they get food. So it's a lot like the, 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 the test uh, in, in the aviary. Right? And then you switch them around. My whole career now has become based on switching stimuli around. It's just my thing that I do. And looking at second choices. People can always tell when I review one of their articles, when I say, have you looked at second choices? And people go, oh, it was Dave Broadback, wasn't it? Because it's been my thing forever. So. So I switched them around. Chickadees light on space. The Junkos, not so much. Chickadees, when directly tested on color, do very poorly. I was able to, what I would do is I would train them up to just do color. So, so you have these two here like this as the sample, let's say, as what they see first. And then if on the, on, the, on the test, I moved them around. So here's the same monitor here. And so we've got a blue one. Where'd my green go? Here it is. And a green one here. So, I don't know. Put them right there. They don't have a freaking clue. You, oh, eventually they have a clue. They can learn it. But they're so are not good at learning about color. Because they're like, oh, it's the one over there. Well, there's none over there now. Now what? Junkos could learn that. The chickadees could learn it and eventually get as good as the Junkos, except it took 600 trials. Now, these, the nice thing is I could run 40 of these a day because they're getting a little tiny bit of ground-up sunflower seed, not a half a peanut. Not a half a peanut. Thank you to the good insert for paying for that. All that equipment for me. So, functionally, this makes a great deal of sense, doesn't it? So, evolutionarily, um, 
Birds remember where something is, not what color it is. They, it's not they forget what color it is, but what's the most reliable cue out there? Colors change very quickly, especially in the winter or in the fall. Colors either change or they are all uniform. Oh, look, it's white and gray. <laughs> I think I put it in that white snowy, snowy tree. That's not going to help you. That's not going to help you too much. But the line of trees and that hill, those hills over there, that's going to tell you where something is, and you've got to do a pretty good job remembering. So that's what they pay attention to. That's what they remember. Does it make sense? Is there a question about that? So the strange result actually is the one of the junko because junkos are not paying attention to and not remembering the spatial locations in that funny that feeder task and also in this task here. Right? And some other stuff I've done. Um, this is with a whole bunch of honor students back when I was. Uh, did it in 97, but I mean, we did it in the 90s when I was postdoc at Western. We had ch- uh, pigeons, and they had like three, kind of like this thing here, kind of like this kind of deal, except, say, we have a red one, a green one, and a blue one, and they search until they find the right one and they get rewarded, and then eventually I would switch them around. And I say I, I should say that eventually either Mike Boisvert, Steve Vaughn, or Stephanie Grant would switch them around. So let's say this was the correct one, the green one. And the birds have to search around until they get the right one. And then we switch it around so we go, uh, let's put red here and put, what am I doing here? So I'm switching green over here. They follow the space. They go to the, the, the pigeons were going to the, to the right place. They weren't paying attention to color. There's something special about the aviary task. It's something special about the, there being so many stimuli. And you might say, well, maybe you just screwed it up, Dave. Uh, actually, no, because this has been replicated in a lot of different species of food storing and non-storing birds. Both these effects in the aviary and in, in the operant box have been replicated by Nikki Clayton uh, and by Al Campbell. So with other storing and non-storing bird species. So there's something weird and special about that task. Um, and I don't know what it is. And nobody's been able to figure it out. It's pretty reliable. I think it's because there's so many stimuli. Whereas there's so few in this task up here. And chickadees have to rely on remembering where thousands and thousands of stimuli are. And there are other food stores. Okay. Questions about that stuff? Now, I highlighted the stuff I've done partially because of my gargantuan ego, but partially because it, it, it shows, I, I think it illustrates an important point. I should also say that people still look at differences in memory between storing and non-storing birds, but mostly we've told the story now. The beautiful thing about this is that people made predictions. They said there should be a difference in storing for versus non-storing birds in their spatial memory, but not, say, in their color memory. And actually, that's what's happened. It's exactly what Campbell said to do. You look at their life history, you look at their brains, and then you say, well, how do they behave? We expect it to work like this because of evolutionary pressures, and it did. And the story is pretty much told now. In fact, it's, though not, it's not done yet, but the idea that there isn't a difference in memory between storing and non-storing birds is something now that's gone. 
Now people are looking at cool things like episodic memory in food storing birds. Do they actually remember storing the, the food item? Stuff that Nikki Clayton's done and Al Campbell and Ken Chang. Um, do they remember how much food they put in each cache? What kind of food? Pretty wild stuff, because that's like episodic memory when you think about it. Pretty wild stuff. So people are still working on this, but the basic premise now, that the idea that, oh, there's no difference, that's gone. And no one ever is accepting anymore this idea of, well, there's really no difference. People are now working on things, a lot of neural stuff too, protein expression and hippocampus when they store food. People are doing all kinds of cool stuff like that. People like Dave Sherry, Scott McDougall, Shackleton at Western, who have a building this big that does nothing but work on birds, the advanced facility for avian research. Awesome. It's got a wind tunnel. I know I think I've told you before, but it's got its own wind tunnel. They can put birds in a room and change the air temperature and pressure and then they blow once they fly, and they can say, well, what's it like after they migrate? Well, let's make them migrate. It's <laughs> kind of awesome. You should see this place. It's incredible. Okay. You good? Questions on this stuff? Okay. So you can actually take this stuff into the world. So this is some stuff I did. Again, see, this is all about my ego now. I've been talking about all kinds of shit that I find boring. We're not doing stuff I find interesting that I did. Um, this is stuff that a student of mine back, oh, about 10 years ago, uh, Jessica Humber, did a project on when she did a summer insert with me. Back when I had a lab and had a built, we had a psychology department where I was, had a, I had a lab. Um, always say, never say anything bad about the good insert. Sarah had one, Sarah Shuttleworth had one superstition. Never say anything bad about the good end, Cirque. Very nice. So, Jessica Humber is a star, was a student uh, in the biology, environmental science program. Uh, and she came to me because she got an end, Cirque, and the old, there were two profs there at that, that campus of Moral Head Cirques. There was me, and there was an astronomer. And she said, I don't know anything about astronomy. Biologist. I said, well, here, here's a ton of books and papers. Read these and come back in a week. She did. And there she is, actually. Uh, and there is in her backyard in Pasadena, Newfoundland, which is about, oh, I don't know, 30 kilometers north of Cornerbrook, where I, where I lived. Um, by the way, a couple things. That's June. Notice how there's no leaves on the trees. Also, it's called Pasadena because it was founded by a woman from California that moved to Newfoundland. She was literally the little old lady from Pasadena, which is a song by the Beach Boys, which I think is great. Um, and in fact, it was such a big deal in town that she got this award that it even got written up in the local paper, which I thought was kind of neat. Uh, you stand there looking like an idiot. So, there's, there's Pine Siskins in Jessica's backyard. Okay, you can see them there. So they're finches, and they're, they, they breed in North America. Uh, they, can, they, they don't migrate a whole lot, but when they do migrate, they migrate en masse. Like, all of them leave, and they do what are called migratory invasions, all the way into the central and southern parts of the U.S., and even as far into Mexico, down into Mexico. But they usually don't go that far south. But when they do, they all do. 
It's a strange behavior. You see it sometimes in some birds. So this is one of these things where it makes you think. Well, we live as a, going back. We live on the we lived in the West Coast, Newfoundland. Um, so it was easy for Jessica to actually do this by while sitting in her backyard at her at her um, dining room table watching birds. First thing. Secondly, it's an interesting species because they must be sensitive to foods. This is our this was our guess to food supply and the fluctuation of it. Because why do birds migrate functionally? Well, it's to find more food. So they probably can really notice when the food supply fluctuates. Sort of like storing birds, right? Storing birds, that's what they do. They notice that food is getting scarce and they start storing it. Right? Which is what Dwayne Keogh's honors thesis was about that he did with me. Um, so, first thing we train them to do is go to different feeders that had different amounts of food. So feeders were placed a few meters apart in Jessica's backyard with a, at a three to two to one ratio. You can see the feeders here. On four by fours, we've got a green one and a red one and a yellow one. They don't move around. They're always in the same place. There's three cups of seed in here, two cups of seed here, and one cup of seed here. a couple of weeks for the birds to learn there were seeds that there were feeders there but once they did they made a lot of visits in fact if you look here these are five observation setting sessions how do you how did she do this um, I we've standardized this as percentages because the, the numbers fluctuate quite a bit depending on if it's raining they don't go feed as much like bad weather things like that and it is Newfoundland it, you get a lot of shitty weather but Jessica had an MP3 player on that had me saying every 30 seconds, switch, switch. And it went on for, I think it was half an hour of me just saying switch every 30 seconds. And that meant she would look at this feeder, then this feeder, then this feeder. And she'd write down what was happening. It was, how many birds were there? That's a systematic way to do it. Rather than, how would we do it today? We'd probably set up a video camera uh, and video the whole thing, but this is just, a, it's a sampling technique, and it's used quite a bit, and it actually would be no different, more than likely. So it's a lower-tech solution, worked pretty well. So they can pretty clearly learn to distribute their visits that way. No problem, okay? So they can. They would, as you can see, they've distributed their visits that way. Um... This could be due to the birds actually seeing how much food was in each feeder. You saw they had little windows. We bought them a Canadian tire. Um, or they could have just emptied the rightmost feeder first, right? Because it's got not so much food. So that's why there's more visits to the one feeder. Um, though we know it's not that. Because if you look later on in the day, she did two sessions a day, and you look later on in each session, there was equal amount of food in each. So that's probably not the case. But the feeders were left out there all day. So what we did is we covered them up. And then, so you can see now that she would cover them up with like cardboard kind of thing. And then switch them around. 
Where'd she get that idea? She got it from me. <laughs> so moving them around, switching around a couple of, of, of feeders. Now what we can do is see where do they visit. Do they visit, is it the leftmost, then the middle, then the right, or are they following green, red, yellow? That's the question. So here we go. And these are all days when there's absolutely no food in them, by the way. The green and the yellow, that's yellow, that's green. It's kind of hard to see the differences here. Leftmost feeder, middle, right. Left, middle, right. Left, middle, right. Left, middle, right. Oh, these ones are weird. So they're following the spatial pattern completely until the feeder that is the really good, the, the, the prized one, the green one, is in completely the wrong place. Right? It's in exactly the opposite of where it should be. At that point, they now distribute their visits equally. This tells us that this was different enough from the original kind of configuration that they treated it as a, as a, as, as, as a whole new array of feeders. So they follow space on its own, but if everything's, uh, if the best feeder of all is in the worst possible position, they then treat it like it's a brand new array of feeders and they don't know how to behave. So it's a pretty heavy reliance on spatial cues in these guys as well. So the system replied based on space, sort of, was the way we put it. Uh, we didn't usually actually use that in the paper we wrote about this. Oh, I should note that this is, um, what you're looking at here is a, uh, this, is a, this is a talk that I gave at a conference. So that's why it had that little title slide at the beginning. So this is, the, this is done, was presented at the Conference of Comparative Cognition in uh, Melbourne, Florida which is a conference I go to all the time because it's in Florida and it's in March. <laughs> a bunch of people that study comparative cognition decided that they needed to go to Florida in March. This year it's in April. Which isn't bad, but that means I don't miss any school. <laughs> it's sort of a shame. I was like, well, I gotta, sorry guys, I, I can't be here to teach you statistics. I have to go to Florida for work. So if the most profitable feeder is not in the exact opposite position, it should be that in that case, then it's like, well, there's a whole different word, world, right? So once that happens, they treat it as if it's, a, it's an array of feeders they know nothing about. Uh, this was eventually uh, published in, um, well, it's hanging up outside my office. There, you know, we have our publications. There's a, a third person on it now. So. And Jessica's first because, again, it was her, it's her answer. She should, be, she should be the first author. And as usual, when I give a talk, I always thank, you always have the thank you slide. Uh, so this is when I was back in Newfoundland. So the people I thanked were my assistants. That's uh, Craig Keynes, who now is a special needs uh, school teacher in Newfoundland. Uh, he still is a drummer in a band, by the way. There's Eric Legg, who now is a PhD in psychology. And it's actually it's his 31st birthday. He has a PhD doing animal cognition work. He just finished up with Marcia Spech. And I always thank my kids, and that's what they looked like then. That's, if you, that's my Facebook banner thing, if you've ever seen that. Um, and 
Then I would show people, I would always say, thank you for having this conference in Florida, because that's what it looks like where I live. Uh, and by the way, that's not an optical illusion. That's how high that snowbank is. That's Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. You think you know what snow is? You have no, that's not, that's nothing. What's out there? That's snow. Last time I did one here, up front when I, at that conference when I was based here at Algoma, uh, instead of doing that, I took a picture, I just had a picture of my um, phone showing the temperature. I thought that was appropriate. You know, and it was like what, minus 28 or something like that. You know. All right. So questions about that stuff? So that's just a, an example. The next thing is, you see what we could do there? We could do pretty solid science, I think. Um, and you better think, because it's my class. Uh, in somebody's backyard. It's certainly doable. Right? You just have to be systematic about it and know what you're doing. Right. You can do systematic observations that are actually, and that was an actual field experiment. In fact, I think the title of the, the, the paper is, yeah, it's with colon, a field experiment. Right. So I, mean, it's a, I think a pretty solid thing that can be done. You can do this kind of stuff out in the wild with very little funding. It can be done. It's hard, though, because you still have to, I mean, Jessica got an insert, so she got paid to sit there watching her birds in her backyard. <clears throat> Right. Okay. So generally, when we talk about animal memory, we can talk about you know how in human memory a lot of times talk about uh, long-term and short-term memory. Generally, right? Those of you guys who've taken the memory course or who will take it know eventually it gets divided up, and you've got uh, what we now call working memory for short-term memory, and for long-term memory we now break that down into semantic, episodic, procedural. But it's still short and long-term, isn't it? Well, in animal memory, we do something similar. We have what's called working memory and reference memory. Working memory are the rules of the game. Oh, sorry. Reference memory is the rules of the game. How to play. So when you think about Deborah Olson's task, the rules of this game are, I'm supposed to peck... The uh, key that's in, in the same position of the one I just pecked. Now, working memory would be oh, it's the one on the left. Because it was just the one on the left. Next trial, it's the one on the right, perhaps. Now, it's the working memory part is it's the one on the right. Those are the trial by trial things. So they're kind of related to short and long term memory. So they got that, that sort of relation to the short and long-term memory, that's for sure. So one of the things we can use to look at this is, and I've sort of previewed this here, is called delayed matching to sample. So matching to sample is when I present the animal with a sample. And we're going to use colored pecking keys just because it's easy to understand. Uh, today they wouldn't probably be, again, they probably wouldn't be pecking keys so much as images on a touch screen, but whatever. So there's the sample. And then there's a retention interval. 
And we're talking here, it's a couple of seconds. They're not doing anything long. And then the animal is presented with two keys. So we got, it's presented with green, and then it's, then it's given blue and green. The animal's task is to match to sample. It picks here, picks here, it gets food. Picks here, it gets no food. And it gets, and then after that, they get an inner trial interval, which is just the amount of time between each trial. And then we go back up to here. Now, obviously, the sample isn't always going to be green. Obviously, sometimes the right answer is on the left and sometimes it's on the right. We're method-obsessed psychologists. Of course we do this. This is why psychologists are very good at that. Some say that's all we're good at. Really good at research methods. Not quite buy that, but there is something to be said for having all that research methods and statistical training as an undergraduate is that you pick stuff like that up pretty quickly. So, that's called matching to sample. You can do it with people. It's pretty easy for people. You can do it with pigeons. You can do it with rats. A little harder with rats because they don't see very well. You could do it with monkeys. They've got a lot of monkeys. Okay. So what is the reference memory part of this and what is the working memory part? Yeah, sorry, I'm sorry. Would the reference be like on the first trial, so you see green and then you pick green, and then would the working be like when it changes to blue and you know to pick blue? You're getting it. Yeah, that's close. That's close if I'm interpreting what you're saying in the best possible light. Yeah, which I will because you're pretty bright. So the working memory, the reference memory part of this is, well, there's two ways you can look at this. Or the bird, let's use a pigeon. There's two ways a pigeon could look at this. Reference memory could be if green, peck green, if, red, if blue, peck blue, which is kind of think what you were saying, right? Okay. But there's another, what's, there's, there's another way you could solve this. What's, what's, that's, that's two rules. Reference memory has two rules. If blue, peck blue, if green, peck green. What's the other rule it could have? That's one possible right answer, by the way. Yeah, Dan. It'd be uh, if green peck blue. No, but that's not what we're training them to do. Oh, right. Yeah. We're training them up that if green peck green, if blue peck blue. And they may remember it that way, reference memory wise. Again, they're not thinking that. They're not saying it, you know, because they don't have words. But what's the other possibility? Yeah, Cassie. Or just be like right and left. Yeah, but we switch left and right around all the time. Yeah, so we're controlling for that. Other ideas? Maybe it's the same kind of thing, but if it's green, then avoid blue. That's an interesting thought. Yeah? But maybe it's the same kind of thing. Same kind of idea, though. That'd still be two rules, but, and we could probably get at that. That's kind of neat. Yeah. What's that? What about a one rule system? Always match. Yes, match to sample. Yeah, exactly. That's the one rule. The ones now it could be either, and they, by the way, just like the qualitative quantitative difference thing, the qualitative part. 
Well, they could just match the sample. You get the same answer. The reference, the working memory part, I'm sorry, is there's two possibilities for the working memory part, too. Working memory is happening during the rotation interval. Because during the rotation interval, this goes dark, okay? So we got a three-key setup. Okay, so we have one key here, another key, another key. The sample's always in the middle key. Then the left and right keys light up red or, uh, sorry, green or blue. I always use red and green because that's all the stuff I've ever done. I had red and green keys and I had to have a red marker. Um, so what are they, what's, what's the working memory thing? To remember what they just saw. Yeah, that's one possibility. What's the other possibility? It's like, it was green, it was green, it was green, or it was blue, it was blue, it was blue. What's the other possibility? Because that's right. There's another way they could be doing it too. Peck green, peck green, peck green, peck blue, peck blue, peck blue. They could be encoding prospectively. In other words, they could be saying, I'm going to peck blue when it comes up. Or they could be saying, I saw a blue one. And you're thinking, are they going to get that? Yeah, actually, oh, I love that experiment. I'm going to explain it to you, not this day, but next time. And it's so cool. Um, it also actually gives me goosebumps that I understand it, frankly. Because um, I remember reading that the paper. Then it came to me one day. So this is cool because look at that. First of all, this is such a simple task. And you think, well, cognitively not that hard, but there's a lot of different strategies they could be using, right? We could also use delayed non-matching to sample, which would be if green peck blue or if blue peck green, which is kind of what Dan was saying. So Dan sort of preemptively talked about delayed non-matching to sample. Same idea. Now, the neat thing here is there can be qualitative differences here. And I've talked before about Nick McIntosh. And McIntosh, Wilson, and Bokes in 1982 did something really cool. They actually tested, are they using one rule or two? Are they using if green, peck green, if blue, peck blue? Or are they using match to sample? How could you do that? This, by the way, this is not an easy thing to figure out, but I just want to see if you can figure it out. Wisdom of the crowds. So we've trained them up on... I have a red marker. I, I'm so... Nah, it doesn't matter. Just I like red and green. That's what I'm used to using. <laughs> Everything I've ever done with Skinner boxes, we had red and green keys. You wouldn't use blue and green. They, they confuse them too easily. It's too hard to learn. Anyway, you've trained them up like this. Now, how do we figure out how they're doing this? Are they using match to sample, or are they using if green, peck green, and if blue, peck blue? When I explain it to you, you're going to go, oh, of course. Really clever experiments are like that. Are you like varying the shade of the color? You're getting there. I have a black one. Maybe it's a black key. They couldn't see it. It's in the dark. <laughs> what even is this? Oh, look at that. Ooh. Ooh. I like this one. It better not be a shirt. Let's just do something. 
oh, it doesn't work. Oh, they're all that. <laughs> oh, I was so excited with this marker. Yeah, it's garbage, yeah. Um, no, I don't want to leave bad markers for my colleagues. Like, it's nothing worse. You think there's markers, you get to one of these classes with a whiteboard, and then he's like, that doesn't work. Okay. Tori was on to the right idea. What we're going to do is we're going to train up pigeons, and it's going to be, they're going to be trained on red, and then it's red and green, and I'm going to use blue. <laughs> okay? So there's the, looks just like this, but it's red and green. We're also going to train up another species of birds, by the way, we're training up some jackdaws. Jackdaws are cool, they're, they're birds that mimic. They're from over in the UK. So you see a jackdaw. Jackdaws are amazing, actually. They're really creepy. Because they don't just mimic speech sounds, they mimic everything. They had a bunch at Oxford when I was there, and you'd walk into where they're being housed, and they'd make a sound of keys jingling. Because the attendant, the tech guy that fed them, always came in with his keys, getting ready to unlock the key thing, uh, the food thing. And then all making that sound, you go, okay, either I have my keys or it's the birds. <laughs> so it's like they're a little too smart for their own good. And, like, and they're British birds. So they're like, and it's so weird hearing a bird doing a British accent. Right? It's weird enough when you hear one, that, you know, like a, like, a, like a parrot or jackdaw that's like, says, you know, hello. And then it goes, hello. That's even weirder somehow. <laughs> you know, it's just something a little bit weirder about it. And then it's like, Very creepy. But they seem like they're pretty smart. So let's do a compare what the hell. Let's just see if they, 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 can, they can mimic all these sounds. Maybe they can discriminate a lot of things. Who knows? So um, Nick McIntosh, Wilson, whose name I don't know, and Bob Bokes uh, trained up both jackdaws and pigeons on red-green matching the sample. Very classic. Now the question is, what are they doing? Well, first of all, they get very good at this very quickly. 90% correct. They make mistakes, but not very many. And then we switch it up. So blue, and then the choices are blue and yellow. If they are using if red, peck red, if green, peck green, they should be completely dumbfounded when you change colors to blue and yellow, shouldn't they? They shouldn't have a, it's a it's if red, peck red, if green, peck green, blue, yellow, what's going on with the world? No one's told me how to do this. If they're using match to sample, it's like, huh, blue. I didn't expect that. But it's match to sample after all. So we should expect a drop to chance, 50%, if they're using two rules, if they're using if red, peck red, if green, peck green. We should expect very little drop. We're going to get some drop off when we, if they're using um, not just the rule match to sample. We should expect a little bit of drop off because of generalization decrement. Like the, the, it's... The idea there's a generalization uh, of a generalization uh, gradient, right? So they're gonna, there's going to be a little bit of a problem, but they're going to be well above chance. Isn't that freaking clever? Right? Doesn't make you go, oh, I did not think of that. Yeah, Dan. Uh, can you teach uh, birds how to uh, memorize the sequence? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You can get them to do the stuff you can get a pigeon or a. Uh, the stuff you get a pigeon to do, a lowly freaking pigeon would boggle your mind. Um, Skinner taught pigeons to play ping pong. 
just to reinforce it. Like, I mean, you can, and sequences of images, and I talked about one, Delius' stuff where they were remembering images from 180 days ago. Oh yeah, they're good, they're good. So what happens? The, the, pigeons, the pigeons drop to 50%. Stupid pigeons. <laughs> I just talked about how brilliant they are. Pigeons are stupid. <laughs> Jackdaws go from 80 to, to 90 to about 70%, and go back up to 90 pretty quickly. Oh, by the way, it's not like the, 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 the pigeons can't learn this. It's just they have, to, they have to now learn, okay, if blue, peck blue. If yellow, peck yellow. Whereas the jackdaws are like, oh, lovely. Match the sample. That was the keys. I do that in there. <laughs> so there's a qualitative difference again. In fact, that was one of the things that led me to want to do that kind of stuff, was reading that paper. So... Uh, while I sort of portrayed it as I came in my first day of graduate school and said, I will figure out what chickadees remember. I had also read some literature. You know, it wasn't just something I invented out of whole cloth. Wish it were. <laughs> Isn't that cool? It's very clever. It's very clever. Both of these, by the way, matching and non-matching, which are basically the same task anyway, they are subjected, subject, uh, they are uh, subject to, rather, proactive and retroactive interference. You know about interference, right? It's the, so proactive interference is that the stuff you have done before interferes with the stuff you're doing now. So proactive interference, speaking of keys, unless you have a place you put your keys every day, you know, we have a little thing of hooks on the way into our house, like in the hall, and you put your keys on the hook, then you never lose your keys. Unless you're, doesn't Isabel put her keys in the garbage? <laughs> it was a mistake, obviously. She was coming in with a friend, and she had a bunch of stuff in her, and then she took a bag of garbage out of the car, you know, it was just some stuff, and she threw it in the garbage outside, and then she couldn't find her keys. And I looked everywhere. I even emptied the garbage in the kitchen with my hands, going, they got to be in here? Couldn't find it. Then I went out, and we were going to, she was, we were looking up on the internet, how do you, you know, what do you do? Because, I mean, the key, her car keys, our car's all high-tech shit, so, you, you know, it's going to cost a billion dollars to get new keys. Or do we just go to Ford and they just give us a new thing? It looked like that was what it was. They could just program a key for us. It. Very nice. But then it's like, but my keys are still going to work in our car, and plus then also with our house key, and we're screwed. We have to... And then I went outside to put the recycling out, and I saw that thing was off the garbage can, and I went and looked and went, well, I went back and I said, oh, are these your keys? Um, so I'm kind of awesome. But <laughs> normally what happens, why do we have those little hooks? Because and a lot of people have those in their house, right? So you don't forget where your keys are. Because you ever do this? You're looking for your keys and you say, I can't find my keys. Oh, I know where they are. They're right beside the TV. And you go to look and you go, oh, that was yesterday. That wasn't today. That's proactive interference. The best, the best solution, by the way, is to just hide, put your keys always in exactly the same place or put them in a completely unique place each day, which is probably going to become impossible very quickly. So the same place each day is a good idea. So we get proactive interference. Retroactive interference is stuff now interfering with remembering what happened before. So where did I put my keys two days ago? I don't want you to ask yourself that question. Well, maybe it's because you remember I put my keys down and I had a USB key, a USB stick in my pocket as well, and I know I put it with my keys. Where did I put my keys two days ago? Oh, it was right beside 
uh, the clock in the bedroom, you go, oh, that was yesterday. So that's retroactive interference. So our memory is, of course, subject to this horribly, but so is memory and animal memory, which shouldn't surprise us. So matching the sample is subject to proactive interference. How do we know this? Well, you can do a lot of really kind of neat experiments where what you do is instead of having only, say, two colors, you might have four colors. And then you take a look at when they make mistakes, what kind of mistakes are they making? So are they making mistakes that would have been correct two trials ago? Right? And in fact, yeah, they'll do that. And the more, the reason I mentioned the inner trial interval here, the, the smaller this number is the, of seconds between trials, the bigger the proactive interference, which makes sense because you just did it. So what the animal has to do is it has to dis discriminate between what just happened and what just happened, if, it, if it's what just happened and what just happened 10 seconds ago, those are hard. If it's what just happened what just happened a minute ago, it's a lot easier. Right? A lot of that work was done, uh, a lot of the stuff on proactive interference been done by a couple of people. One of them is Tony Wright, uh, who's at, uh, I think he's at Rice University in Houston, Texas. Um, uh, and he's, he's, he's really smart. My friend Rob, he always tells his graduate students, when, when Tony Wright comes up and talks to you, just stop and listen. Very smart guy. And Tony's always, everything's about massive proactive interference. In fact, some of the chi early chickadee work I did, we either had the same four feeders in the same place each day, or I had trial unique feeders. The feeders changed every day and the configuration changed every day. And the chickadees were way better at remembering where seeds were if the feeders were unique. They could see, because their memory is so damn good, they couldn't help but remember what happened yesterday and the day before, so they started to make some mistakes. They get right around, in fact, it got to the point, after enough trials, they were right around chance, because they just couldn't help but remember yesterday and two days ago, three days ago, four days ago. If you moved them around a lot, they had no problem. That was my master's thesis. U of T had such a, had such a sensible way to do their graduate program. Your master's takes a year. It's like a really good honors thesis. You start in August, or you start in September, and it's due the last day of August. It's not a big deal. I think they, even, they might do an oral exam now, but that's it. You have to do a proposal by the end of December. You start working in January. You collect data. Then you write it in the summer. And you hand it in, and you're given a master's degree. Because it's just a way to get to, your, to the PhD. It's, I think it's just a way for them to get rid of students they don't think should do PhDs. Because if it takes you longer than a year to do your master's at U of T, they go, yeah, no. Here's a master's degree. There's a lovely parting gift for you. You won't be in the PhD program. And my application to the PhD program at U of T was, oh, go tell the school graduate studies you're in the PhD program now. Like it was, it was literally that simple. They, uh, I, that was a really good thing with U of T, among many other good things. So that's why it's like my 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 my, honor, my master's thesis, which is like I was, stuff I was just talking about. That was three. It was twenty four pages long. Twenty four pages long. It's half the size of my honors thesis, which was a piece of shit. Now we could do symbolic matching. Now what's symbolic matching? Well, 
Some people say it's not matching at all. Those people are being too literal. I present you with a sample, and the sample is a triangle. And your choices are, I don't know, blue and uh, yellow. And let's give you a food here. And here we give you inner triangle. So, better way to So, triangle means yellow, and uh, square means blue. Okay? That's called symbolic matching sample. So what the animal is learning there is a, an association, I guess you call it, or a relationship that triangle means yellow and square means blue. Now, the interesting thing is here, they cannot be learning... They cannot be solving this with, with, with a reference memory of with one rule, can they? Because they can't really do match to sample because you, you never present it with that. So they have to learn two reference memory rules. If triangle, peck yellow. If square, peck blue. This is really not that hard to teach the animals. So you can teach this to pigeons. I mean, I, these are almost all pigeon experiments. And this is the way that you can get at the idea of are they remembering pet triangle, saw a triangle, saw a triangle, saw a triangle, saw a triangle. By the way, they do rehearse like that. We know they do that. I saw a triangle, I saw a triangle, I saw a triangle. Or are they remembering peck yellow, peck yellow, peck yellow, peck yellow? Because now we have two different things. So what we can do now is we can determine, are they remembering prospectively, so peck yellow, peck yellow, or retrospectively, saw a square, saw a square, saw a square, saw a square. And it is way too complicated to explain that experiment in the three minutes I have left. So we'll stop now, and I'll explain it to you. Thanks, guys.
approve of the choices I make At least I'm not afraid to stand up for the chances I take For every breath spring that I've reached for I missed a thousand times before What else is living for? podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.